Dare we open Pandora's mystic box? To every generation, a slayer is born, except this time, there were six. This is the dimension of imagination. You are entering the mystic zone. Do you ladies see that aura? Something wonderful this way comes. Welcome to the Mystic Order podcast. We're the Mystic Order of East Alabama fiction writers. I'm Mystic Gail, the Mystic Queen. I'm Marion, the Dog Whisperer Mystic. I'm Mystic Margie. I'm Mystic Margie, the Illuminator Mystic. And I'm Mystic Katie, the Mystic Oracle. Our podcast guru, the Mighty Rivers Langley, has returned to Hollywood where he will continue with his own podcast, The Goods from the Woods. We hope we can go on without his bullying us into this century in podcasting. But to help us along today with our thoughts is our esteemed guest, Ken Autry, Poetry Maharishi for Auburn. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Gail. I'm very pleased to be here and uh, delighted to be an honorary mystic today on this occasion. Look forward to our conversation. Well, we're thrilled you're here. And today, our subject, and I hope you like the subject, Ken, is travel and poetry. And I think poetry just falls right in with your line of thinking. Tell us about, I, by the way, did pull out your book, Pilgrims, and tell us a little bit about your life with poetry. Well, I've been writing poetry for a number of years, and having retired and moved back to Auburn about seven or eight years ago, uh, I have had even more time to devote to poetry, uh, in part to my own poetry and also to the Third Thursday Poetry Series, which is a, an almost monthly uh, program that's held at the Jewel Collins Smith Museum of Art. Um, it runs uh, beginning in August throughout the uh, main part of the year, ending in May. And uh, so in August, we will begin again with a guest poet, and uh, typically, the guest poet reads. Uh, prior to that, we normally have a, an open mic reading for community. Oh, and I read at your open mic. And when I got through reading, everybody just applauded uproariously. And I was so proud of myself. And I went and sat down, and the second person got up and read theirs. And guess what? They did the same thing? Right. <laughs> It wasn't just you? It wasn't just me. <laughs> so. I think you should feel very pleased, Gail, at your performance, and I look forward to the next time you step up to the mic for the open mic reading. Thank you. I, I can't wait. In fact, tomorrow night, no, well, I guess we're stopped for the season, right? Okay. Well, um, talking about travel, the first place I'd like to mention is the Yukon, and I defer to my mystic sister, Katie. So last year, was it last year? Yes, we had an adventure in the Yukon. It's not quite Call of the Wild, but um, or Robert's quite Service, close. but it was quite close. So we, after almost a day of travel, we finally got into Whitehorse about midnight during a blizzard. And it's so small that a bus picked up every single person Everyone on the plane. Everyone at the airport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, and so then we went straight to the Mountie Hotel, which has a giant Mountie standing out front. It, it it was dark. We didn't see it that night, but the next day. And we day. went for the comedy festival because uh, my son was uh, invited to uh, do the Canadian comedy festival. So, Who's our, our producer, your son. Yes, right? our producer who has mm -hmm. left us wondering how to do this. So 
uh, but the snow was so high that you couldn't put money in the parking meters. And Katie, my uh, roommate, suggested we walk uptown. So I said, well, then we're going to have to do Tai Chi walking so we don't bust our butts on the black ice. And so we looked like two ducks in all our clothes, um, waddling up to the bank and white horse. It was an adventure, though, right? It was. That's what adventures are. It was. Um, another travel that I've noticed is in Ken's book, Pilgrims. And I think you have more than one poetry book, don't you, Ken? I have several chapbooks, this being the first of several. Pilgrims, published by Main Street Rag a number of years ago which, as the name suggests, uh, pertains largely to my own travels, some of them actual, others imaginary. <laughs> well, that's kind of how we travel with Im imagination. <laughs> that's the only way Mystic Marion travels. Oh, really? You don't travel Mystic Marion? Well, you know I don't. I don't turn left. I don't leave the dogs. But, but I travel in my imagination quite a bit. Well, exactly where do you go in your imagination? Oh, I go to parts unknown. Well, that does not give us enough information. <laughs> That's why she's saying it that way. <laughs> Margie, do you ever travel? Yes, I travel a lot. In fact, my husband and I just got back from um, this year Sundance Film Festival, which was really, it was fantastic. A, really a learning curve, though. And I taught for years in study abroad, so um, I've, I've taught all over Europe and also in South America. So, yeah, I love to travel. Well... Uh, what happened at, at Sundance? Did you meet Jeremiah Johnson? No, we didn't. <laughs> but we did meet quite a few filmmakers because after every film, the actors and the filmmakers have a Q&A. So it's really interesting. And it's spread out between Park City and Salt Lake City and theaters in between. So you really can travel, you know, all around Utah. And it's fascinating. And, of course, it's in the winter. So there was snow. And we had a snow challenge as well, uh, but we managed to survive. And um, there also free public transportation, you know, free, like free from between Kimball Junction and Park City. I thought you said fruit travel, and I was imagining them handing out apples and <laughs> grapes and bananas on the double-decker bus. No, 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 but it's it's but there are free buses that go to the, you know all the ski resorts and also to Park City. So that's really is great. that year-round or just for the festival? A year-round uh, from. Kimble Junction to Park City, but the festival, if, if you had uh, films in Salt Lake City, you'd have to Uber in or um, take a lift um, or drive, but we didn't run a car. We just used public transportation. In Santa Barbara, California, they have a free trolley that goes from the ocean through maybe four blocks of town and back, and we thought that was totally cool until we realized all the homeless people were on there with us. <laughs> they were, they were living. <laughs> well, good. That's a good way for them to get to the beach. <laughs> Margie, I was just reflecting on it. I've been to Utah myself only once, a number of years ago, spent some time in the Wasatch Mountains, and I remember, uh, and we were aware, those of us who were in the car were aware that this is Robert Redford territory, Sundance film festival and so on. So we're driving along out of the Wasatch Mountains and uh, a, a limousine zooms past us. We, of course, couldn't see who was in the limousine, but one of my friends said, oh, I bet that was Robert Redford. And I said, why? How would you know that? And he said, well, it was a red Ford limousine. <laughs> so I think maybe we saw Robert Redford zooming along in Utah at one point. 
Well, one of the fun things about that festival is is that you do stand in line a lot to get into the films. You know, you buy tickets before, and then you can also get them online. Lots of ways you can get in, but you meet all kinds of people. People, it's the first time they've ever been there, and then people who've been going since it started, and they reminisce when Robert Redford was outside the Egyptian theater just giving away tickets, you know, and inver- and then now it's just, you know, people from everywhere are I'm sure there. it's a mob scene. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really fun, though. You just have to get into it and not not really care if you see anybody, just go with the flow, and that's the best way to go. I recently went on a cruise to Cuba, and I met all kinds of people on the cruise, and every one of them was from Ohio. So I think Ohio was closed that week, because I can't possibly (laughs) imagine anyone left. There were 2,000-something people on this cruise from Ohio. So what's Ohio doing? I mean, are there lights? Are people working? One of my sons lives in Yellow Springs, Ohio, so yes, it is inhabited. <laughs> it is open for business, uh, last I heard. I would like to go back to a comment that Marion made a few minutes ago about not traveling, or not traveling very much. Um, and it reminds me of a quote from The Wizard of Oz um, from Dorothy, who said, If I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. So I think it's possible to travel when you are right in your own backyard. And Henry David Thoreau would have agreed with that. We're all familiar with his book, Walden, and his journals. And uh, someone asked Thoreau at one point about travel. And he said, well, I've traveled a good deal in Concord, Massachusetts, (laughs) his hometown. Well, let me add a quote to that. Emily Dickinson, and this is so appropriate for our conversation here today, Emily Dickinson said, to travel far, there is no better ship than a book. Exactly. So I liked that one a lot, too. Well, I noticed, Ken, in in your book, Pilgrims, and by the way, you said this was a chapbook. Exactly what does that mean for our listening audience? A a chapbook is simply a short book of poetry, usually between 30 and 45 or 50 pages. And the word comes from the old term, cheap book. So what you have in front of you is a cheap book. Well, it was a good cheap book. a few years ago. <laughs> it was a good cheap book. Worth every penny. <laughs> I noticed that uh, in here you had been to um, Africa, Manitoba, Kensington, La Paz, Bolivia, Bogota, Manila, Hiroshima, and then I I quit looking through the book because I thought, gee, I I wrote down every single place I'd been in case we were going to talk about it on the podcast, and I felt awe. Well, I I have traveled a good bit, um, but I must say that some of the places that you reeled off uh, that that are mentioned in the book, um, I have thought about, read about, wanted to visit, but I've never done so. And so you were lying to us. They're, 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 uh, poets are, are very good liars, typically. Um, one of the poems that um, represents a p- place that I've never been to is Manitoba. You were talking about the Yukon a few minutes ago. Well, I've never been, I've been to Canada, but never Western Canada, never Manitoba. But I love the name Manitoba so much that I decided I had to write a poem about I, I like I like words, too. When I like a word, I, I and, like uh, Manitoba is a good word. So I went with it. Similarly, uh, I've written, a, there's a poem in the book about Manila, 
and Manila in the Philippines, which I've never been to. Um, but that one grows out of a news article that I once read about a group of spiritual pilgrims who felt the fire of God, I guess, and decided that in Manila at rush hour, they would go around and let the air out of all the tires in the buses, the buses and the, and the cars in the vicinity. Somehow they thought that this was a religious act, but the police frowned on that. Anyway, I couldn't resist writing a poem about that bizarre episode, which was covered in the newspaper. So, Ken, I'm curious, what took you to all the places you did go? I think there was a job involved. Well, there were, there were two or three different times there were jobs, jobs involved. I was in the Peace Corps um, in West Africa, Ghana, West Africa, just out of college, where I taught English in a secondary school. So that, that was a couple of years, which gave me an opportunity to do some travel. Uh, with the Peace Corps, you're unable to travel too far and wide, but we did have a couple of weeks per year when we were allowed to travel. So I traveled to West Africa. Uh, on my way back, spent some time in North Africa. And uh, many, many years later... Is that uh, where you met your wife? Um, gosh, how long do we have, Gail? <laughs> we, we better... Okay. We, we Never better, mind. We better hold that discussion for... In a way, I did. We'll I, invite I, um, you back when we I, have... I'll, I'll keep it very short <laughs> and sweet. Um, I was married once before, and the, the my first wife and I were in the Peace Corps together for two years. Um, a number of years later, I met my now second wife. Uh, I hope my final wife. How many but years? She was the brother of a Peace Corps the acquaintance sister. of mine. The oh, excuse, I'm sorry. Um, her brother was a Peace Corps acquaintance of mine, and uh, he introduced me to her. So I always say that, in effect, I have two Peace Corps marriages. Right. Um, but so, enough said about that. Well, we'll invite you back when we have marriage problem <laughs> podcast. How's you better that? allow two hours for that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marion, back to your imagination. Um, have you ever been out of Auburn? I know you have to turn left to say go to New York. Yes, I've been out of Auburn. I've, I've traveled a little bit outside the country. I've been to Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Mexico. But um, the travel I think that I've most enjoyed was to the New England states to visit the authors' homes and graves. And I went missing at Walden Pond and nearly caused my daddy to kill me. When he finally did find How did me. you go missing at Walden Pond? I discovered a, I was a teenager. I discovered a fellow, a little bit older than I was, teenager, meditating at Thoreau's Cairn, where the cabin site had been, and I decided to sit down and meditate, too. And in the meantime... Had you ever meditated before? No, but I was watching him carefully. <laughs> And, um, because he was cute. Because he was, well, I don't know, looking back, that he was that cute, but he did have long hair and brown eyes and his cigarettes rolled up in his shirt sleeve. And um, I, I was smitten. And so, I, you know, there's a line in one of Sam Shepard's plays that says, somebody get me out of Minnesota. And at that point in my life, I just wanted to have an experience outside of Alabama. And did you? No, Daddy found me, and we won't put in the podcast what he said, but it involved get in the expletive, expletive car, and um, that was the end of that. 
I'm not sure Henry David Thoreau would have approved of that interchange. I don't know. He would know have probably that. liked the fact that you were meditating Well, I on think his he pond. would have. I think Henry David Thoreau would have loved the fact that I was meditating on his cabin site, although I was really keeping one eye on the, my fellow meditator. One thing that amazed me about Walden Pond when we were there a few years ago is that it actually is a, there's a beach there, and there were a number of people from Concord just hanging out on the beach. I never thought of Walden Pond as having a beach, and I'm not sure whether Thoreau took advantage of that feature or not, but there it was. Did the state already run Walden Pond when you were there? Yes. The first time I went, and I think this might have been the time that I got in trouble, it, it wasn't run by the park services. And then the next time, a few years later, when I went back, it, it was. But, yeah, that was pretty cool that there was a beach there and people were just on the beach. And it's not far from Concord, actually. No, uh, it's not. We think of Walden as being isolated, way out in the woods. But he could walk there from Ralph Waldo Emerson's house, which he often did. He walked into Concord most every day, if I understand right. So I heard this story about him making booties for Emerson's wife's chickens. Have you ever heard that story? I have not. All right, have you been drinking again, like, Katie? No. It sounds like that one might be worth a poem, Gail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet I'd get Aurorius clapping if I if wrote you did that, that. Poem. Mm-hmm. I want to go back really briefly to us going to Whitehorse, and I should have mentioned this. Uh, the people of Whitehorse, Yukon, are the most generous, kind people. And um, even though it's up in the tundra and freezing, it's so much worth the trip. And they treated us to everything that is uh, treatable there because it's a very small town. But the one thing they did do that I thought was so nice is they took us to the glassblower shop. And each of us got to blow some glass object, which is not really true because the workers there were standing behind us holding the stick and moving the stick. We were just basically standing there like a puppet. But at night, when they close down, they don't lock the doors so that the homeless people can come in and sleep near the ovens. So uh, they're just, they were just a great group of people. Plus, they provided us with donuts everywhere we went. And they were the Tim Horton. Horton donuts that are absolutely fabulous. And Katie and I resisted to keep our slim, lovely figures. But till the very last day when we couldn't help it, and there were two dozen on our table, right? And yeah, we left yes. a couple for somebody, mm-hmm. I think. They didn't weigh us when we got on the plane, thank goodness. No. I was a little worried with those small planes if they would ask us what we weighed. Well, Margie, what's, what, uh, what you got? Well, say? I just have one question for Kent. Is Winnipeg in Manitoba in Canada? Yes. Okay. Have you all ever seen that movie, The Saddest Song on Earth? No, no. I have not. Well, it's about a film director who brings in all of these groups because there's nothing happening in Winnipeg. Who can sing the saddest song on earth? <laughs> <laughs> and it is Isabella Rosalini is in it. She has two glass legs that they fill with beer. It is the most surreal, wonderful film. Was that at... Um, it wasn't at Sundance. It's an older film. But look it up and see. What's the, the name of it again? The Saddest Song on Earth. I think that's the name okay. of it. it but right. Are we going to cry through the whole movie? No, it's hilarious. Oh, it's hilarious? Yes, yes. Uh, we can all make a vicarious trip to Winnipeg. Yes. <laughs> I don't know whether I'll ever get there any other way. Well, when we were planning to talk about travel, um, 
in our wonderful new book, Mastering the Art of Wench Cooking, I've written a story about St. Lucia. And I want to tell you the backdrop of, it wasn't a story, it was a poem, about um, this poem, which I've even forgotten the name of, but I do remember the recipe. It was crab cakes. But um, we were with a couple that loved to bird watch. And we weren't bird watchers, but they wanted to go to a bird sanctuary. But the wife, Carolyn, wouldn't let her husband, Gene, drive the rental car because he was over 70. And she thought that the laws of rental cars didn't allow him to drive it. So they were going to take public transportation to the bird sanctuary. And St. Lucia's roads, if one, if you wash away, if the road washes away, um, then they put up a two-by-four in buckets. So if you drive over the cliff, you're dead because it's a big drop to this beautiful ocean. And they were going to take public transportation. I knew we'd never see them again. So I said, well, we'll drive you if you'll only stay in the bird sanctuary for an hour. So we took them there with my husband, who wasn't 70, driving, and we get there, and they shame us that we're not going in the bird sanctuary. And we said, no, I'm just going to sit on this porch here while y'all go in the bird sanctuary. You have one hour, and you will be taking public transportation if you don't get back. Well, they're in the sanctuary, and up drives a busload of English bird-like um, bird watchers, and their driver is a St. Lucian named uh, Lincoln, and he comes and sits with me while they go in the bird sanctuary, and he tells me about his young life in St. Lucia, which was extremely interesting. He was no father, lots of kids, and the mother got their food every day out of the forest, digging for yams and picking plantain and keeping them alive. It was a wonderful story. And then he said, why aren't you in the bird sanctuary? And I told him the story, and he goes, oh, it's not parrot season. You might as well sit up here with me. <laughs> <laughs> so you made the right choice after Which all. Which I'm I sure you mentioned to Carolyn and Jean when well, they came I out. Well, I might have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you ask when they came out how many birds they were able to add to their lifelong bird list? They said they saw a lot of list? beautiful finches. Okay. But um, I wrote a poem to... Um, Lincoln, and uh, I'm going to read it. I chose not to take the tropical trail. The others had worn the correct shoes, along with an assortment of L.L. Bean tackle. I was in strappy sandals and binocular lists. I had my book and the cliffed ocean view. From the sanctuary center ba balcony, I sat in the windward breeze, in the company of the tour bus driver. It's not mango season, he said. They will not see the parrots, only finches. All right, bravo. Thank you. And that's in our wonderful book, which is available on Amazon, Mastering the Art of Winch Cooking. Well, we should hear a poem from Ken, I think. Let's do. Yes. Ken, I want to ask you about a poem real quick. Okay. And I think, I think maybe this was mentioned in Bird by Bird or one of those writing books, but it said, write about your lunchroom. And so, you, you did. I did. And the thing that freaked me out about it is Ken and I are both from Auburn, Alabama, the best city in the whole entire earth. And I wrote one about the same lunchroom. I mean, the poems were different, but when I read Ken's, I thought, this is freaky because it's the same lunchroom. 
How many lunchrooms were there? One. I mean, well, we were very small. But the small. fact is, we both wrote about it. And well, wasn't probably it probably suggest- had many of the same kinds of experiences in that lunchroom with the soggy rolls <laughs> and the mystery meat. We had fish every Friday. We absolutely did. We certainly did. And fish I, sticks, to be and the specific. Ch- I have to say, do you remember you had to buy a token for twenty-five cents to get lunch? And the poor people, which probably I should have been doing this, sold the tokens, and so you knew they couldn't afford their lunch. It was cruel. <laughs> yeah, we were not quite as sensitive back then as we. No, no, we were, we we were much days. more sensitive back then than America today. Much. Okay, read your poem. Well, uh, I'm going to read a poem called "Laundry." Um, it's brief, and it it pertains to an experience that happened to me in London. Laundry. Walking in Kensington, I saw a young woman dragging a bag of laundry down the street. The London sun shone warmly. She wore flip-flops and a black dress, perhaps the only clean item left in her closet. She was straining at the bag, so I offered to carry it, and she was grateful. As I shouldered her burden, I saw that she was beautiful. Despite the heat, her skin showed not the slightest sheen of sweat. It seemed incredible that she had any dirty clothes. When I dropped the bag at the laundry, she hugged me. Beneath the thin fiber of her dress, she wore nothing. Well, can. That's about as lascivious as these poems get. (laughs) <laughs> and why she was you... far too young for me, I must admit. <laughs> How old were you? <laughs> this was probably 15 years ago. That doesn't I would tell say. us how old you were. Well, use your imagination, Gail. <laughs> Let's just say I'm over 70, so I'm not sure I would qualify to, to drive. In the, in the, um, you in can't the, drive in, in St. Lucia in no. the rented car. Uh, well, uh, that poem doesn't pertain to me because I don't care the age if they're cute, right? That's true, Absolutely. Gail. Yes. Oh, and Ken, I met one of my boyfriends at the Thursday uh, poetry reading, and he became a Mac mystic. He, um, he read a poem called Math for Smart People, and it was truly the best poem there, including the guest reader. And so I gave him my card and said to him, I absolutely loved your poem. It was fabulous. And um, he called me, and we had coffee. And during coffee, he's got these runes that are polished river stone that have a, a Greek letter on them, is it? A Greek number or something. And they they're tell the future. And I, and I think they're Norse. They're Norse? Oh, okay. And uh, he kept asking me, should he tell my future? Well, I know who I'm going to marry. We've been married 35 years. I know my children. I'm, I'm retired. So the only thing he might could tell me with that rune, I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he gave me one and said he'd get it back. Um, he, I invited him to the mystic meeting, which was a month away. And mine was for knowledge and, and um, nobility. And so I loved having that rune for the month. I had to give it back to him so he'd have a complete set. I noticed the other mystics got their fortunes told because they don't think they're going to die. So, and they, I guess you're all looking for a future husband or... Not I, said the little <laughs> red hen. I like the idea of having a fortune told, but only tell me the good stuff. 
leave out all the other stuff. Well, I mean, what is left here, really? Maybe more travel. Well, that's true. Maybe more chance encounters. Well, speaking of fortunes and travel, yesterday or Monday of this week, Katie, Gail, and I went to Buena Vista, Georgia, to the to the Pasaquan, Pasaquan, yeah. the home of fortune teller, now deceased, St. Ohm, Eddie Owens Martin. Um, Katie or Gail, you want to tell a little about his place? I, I'd never been. I think you and Gail had both been before. It's in Buena Vista, Georgia. And I've actually been twice. So Yeah, so I was a newbie. Um, so for me, it was just astounding because I didn't know what it? to compare what to. But what is it, girls? Okay, I'll go on a bit. Uh, Eddie Owens Martin grew up outside of Buena Vista, Georgia. In the, he was born in 1908, I believe. So um, early on, he was the son of sharecroppers. It's debatable. Anyway, early on, he realized he was not really like anybody else in Buena Vista. And after finishing eighth grade, he said, I'm going to pick up my skirts and fly and go to New York City, where he became a hustler, a drug dealer, and um, also developed his own kind of religion uh, and the ability to tell fortunes. And then years later, he moved back to Buena Vista and now, built... why did he move back? Well, I don't quite remember. Do you, Gail? He was visited by a oh, being. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Do you and tell from that, From the future. Well, I can't, really, because I don't know the whole story. I would like to mention, though, that our guide certainly did know the whole story. He was amazing. And... Um, we should mention our guide was Mike McFalls, who's a professor of art at Columbus State University. And what is, is his... Pasquan um, is... Pasquan. Uh, is uh, an example of outsider art, which we have a lot of outsider arts in the, uh, artists in the South. They're everywhere, but a particular large number in the South, and he's one of them. So that's an untrained person that spends his, uh, is known for his artwork. And his uh, artwork is hard to explain, but it's an... Uh, it's Eastern in nature. And he... Um, has Mandela's. He, he was able, he was apparently, supposedly, receiving messages through his hair. Mm-hmm. And um, he got, I think it was one of those messages that suggested he come back to Georgia. Well, and all his statue's hair is, up, is like a sharpened pencil to a point. So when you walk around, there how many, I don't know how many figures are there, most of them without their clothes, but uh, all the hair is pointed up, receiving messages from these future beings. I particularly liked the future being that could levitate because I, uh, I've often hoped the mystics would learn to levitate, and we haven't really practiced that much. I'd like to be invited to the next podcast where you plan to do that, and we'll see whether you want to do a video of it rather than just a podcast. I was going to say, that needs to be Well, when we spoke to the Rotarians, I suggested that they, too, were a mystic group, and I asked them to turn to their fellow Rotarian and try to levitate them. And I did not get one single laugh, so that gives you an idea of how how the Rotarians took the mystics. In stride. Well, your your uh, story about Pasaquan, which I'd never heard of, uh, honestly, though it's not that far away from where we sit today, a couple of hours maybe at most, is uh, a not reminder even that, that there is a reminder that uh, there are many things in our own backyards 
that are worth investigating, um, many travel experiences uh, near and far that we could take advantage of that we may not even know about. We need to pay attention to what's around us. Yeah. I, one, once I said to the mystic, we're gonna, mystics, we're going to take a road trip. And um, actually it was to a friend's house maybe eight blocks away. <laughs> M- mystic Mary shows up with a cooler. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing with the cooler? She goes, we're taking a road trip. But I hadn't told them that it was very close by, but it's uh, my dear friend Nina. And Nina owns something like 4,000 bears, 3,000 dolls. She puts up 72 Christmas trees each Christmas. The inside of her house is a magical mystery tour that's dying to take you away. And it's all placed interestingly she is an artist too and i i suspect she's an outside artist because her degrees are in like russian she in fact psychology yeah she may be a russian spy and this is all you know how it's covered up with all the teddy bears well they might have microphones inside (laughs) they're Um, bugged the teddy bears are bugged well since we're segueing away from pasaquan for a moment there's there's rice's cross garden at prattville which is believe it or not where i used to get my former husband to drive me to when i was depressed (laughs) well it certainly will cheer you up is it still there yes it was still there a few years ago i I went back maybe five years ago and it was still there he's not but say the name again rice's cross garden right and he has a sign up that it's for sale for something like three million oh i didn't know about that it's on top of the washing machines. Oh. I liked the Tomb of Jesus keep out ins- <laughs> installation the very best. And the hell is hot on the stove. <laughs> How about uh, the Ave Maria Grotto? Love it. Oh, well, the Ave Maria Grotto is in Cullman, Alabama. Yes. Which... Um, we passed through, the mystics went on a world tour, I think we've mentioned our world tour before, to Mississippi. And the mystics are going on another world tour to Fayette, Alabama, to speak to the Fayette County Library. We're so looking forward to it. Um, all the people that run the library named Jessica, so it's very easy to call up there and say, may I speak to Jessica? which I've done several times wanting to know if they needed information or not. So we have another world tour coming up. But if you can't wait, you can buy our books on Amazon, Mastering the Art of Winch Cooking and the Ploy of Cooking. Um, So we were going up to Iuka, Mississippi, which is a thriving metropolis, right? Right. And um, why am I telling this story? World tour. Oh yes, world world tour. (laughs) Ave Maria Grotto. Oh, the Ave Maria Grotto. Joanne, Joanne, which you is uh, missing in action because she's actually in Austria. Traveling. She's Mm -hmm. traveling. That's the trip. She's at her son's wedding outside of Vienna. Right. Wish we were there. (laughs) She's traveling, but she said, "Oh, uh, I'll be the navigator," and we are all navigating. Uh, challenged so I said well I just want to go see the Ave Maria Grotto and she says oh I'll get you there well 30 minutes way past Coleman Joanne says I think you missed it I'm the driver I yes we actually entered 
um, the interstate below Coleman and therefore missing the uh, the exit for the grotto, which we didn't discover for miles, but we weren't going back. <laughs> <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum at Coleman, there's a Hank Williams Jr. Museum, I do believe. Oh, there is? Have you been to no, it? No, no, no. I'm a senior fan, not a junior fan. What does that mean? It means I have I hold Hank Williams in high regard, don't think so much of junior. Oh, a Hank Jr. I see. Well, uh, have you been to the Hank Williams house in, um, where is it? George, Georgiana? Georgiana. Is that the name mm-hmm. of it? Yeah. Only been to the grave in Montgomery. Yeah. Okay. I've been to the grave. And I've also been to uh, Jim, Her- Jim Morrison's grave in Paris. And just as promised, <laughs> just as promised, there were people sitting there smoking dope. They, I guess they paid them. The Paris government pays them to sit there and do this. Well, it's in Pierre Lachaise, and supposedly in that cemetery, after a few years, if you don't pay some money, you, you they can throw you out. Although really, really famous 30. people are there. Thirty, 30 years. years. Yeah, but um, they're going to keep Jim. His is not a very impressive grave, except for, well, it impressed you know. me. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, when I was there, I heard that. Uh, Jim Morrison's grave in Perlachez Cemetery is the only grave where there was uh, sometimes a guard stationed. There are lots of famous people. In oh, that there cemetery. yes, there was a guard. Uh, but Beethoven but is in that only, cemetery. It's the Beethoven, uh, Balzac, I mean, lots mm-hmm. of lots of well-known uh, writers and musicians Yellow and Jericho. so forth. Yeah, lots of but, artists. But uh, they they took to stationing a guard there because people were. Tearing up, trying to, get, uh-huh. and, and trying to get a piece of the stone stuff, uh, from Jim Morrison's. We didn't tomb. vandalize it. No, we just watched the people that were enjoying themselves there, and we were in awe. Uh, I think we should do an entire podcast on graveyards. I was just thinking well, that. Well, we certainly will. Mm-hmm. We certainly will. And um, I, good idea. Well, I know a lot of dead people we can invite. <laughs> <laughs> and. And they probably won't dominate. They will probably won't have a whole lot to say. You know? <laughs> and if they do, we've just made our fortunes. <laughs> That's it. Well, we should be able to levitate the dead then, right? Well, um, I guess so I want I have to a question. Ask me anything. Well, I was actually going to ask Ken oh, instead okay. of you. Is that okay? Ken, fire, fire away. That's our what I'm kiss. here for. <laughs> I am, after all, an honorary mystic yeah. today. So tell us your background in poetry, because have you been a poet all your life? Were you born into this? What brought you to it? Tell us. No, that story. I was not. I was not. Uh, I was not born uh, into poetry. Um, in fact, uh, like all of us, I'm sure, I remember reading the usual poets in high school, and and also in college at Allen Poe, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman. We can all Frost. We can we can all list the entire litany, um, but. Uh, when I was at the University of South Carolina working on an advanced degree, um, I discovered, and I should have known this beforehand, but I discovered that the poet James Dickey was on the, on the faculty. Obviously, I was not there to study poetry, but realizing that uh, this well-known American poet, uh, who is a bit out of favor these days, but uh, whom I admire greatly, um, was on the faculty, I decided I have to take a course from James Dickey, which I did, and it was one of the absolute best courses I've ever had. I took not only his 
uh, poetry workshop, but also his American poetry course. And uh, he was um, he was incredible for his knowledge of poetry, past and present. And what is and some of, what impression. is some of his poetry? Well, he he's actually James Dick Dickey. Oddly enough, is better known for his fiction than for his poetry. Mm-hmm. Specifically, the novel Deliverance, which was made into a blockbuster movie starring Burt Reynolds and various others. Um, and he made far more money on that one effort than he did in, on any of the 16 or 18 books of poetry that, that he published. Um, but he did win the um, National Book Award with Buck, Jan- Buck Dancer's Choice. And much of his poetry deals with uh, his life uh, growing up in Georgia, but uh, also his... Uh, experiences in the military. Um, he was in Korea during the Korean War. Um, but his poetry ranges very widely and I think is extremely And he accessible. also did the text for Jericho, the South Behel, he did. didn't he? He did. Has anyone he, here read James Dickey's The Sheep Child? Yes. That's one of my favorite poems, yes. and he read it when he was in Auburn. When was he in Auburn? He was in Auburn, I'm going to say, in 70, in the maybe 75 or so. As a matter of fact, I spent an evening with him. Oh, my goodness. Just the two of you? Well, it could have been. It could have been just the two of us, but better judgment took over. I think you were wise to... Uh... <laughs> I had dinner with him, but then I did not go back to his room. I wanted to say one of my aunts dated him. <laughs> Wow. Not for we, long. Maybe we need to have an entire podcast that's, about James Dickey. That's who was a, right. That's a very right. memorable character for, for all sorts of reasons. Well, my brush with greatness with poem, poets um, happened when I was working at Sophie Newcomb, which is no longer, but it was the women's arm of Tulane. And my office had, had been information office, so it was all glass. Um, actually, I had the esteemed position of assistant to the dean of women which uh, cannot be explained without a, a good hour. But anyway, I'm sitting in what looks like information, and all the poets that are coming to read at Tulane stop in my office to ask where this particular professor is teaching. And uh, my favorite, though, was Allen Ginsberg. And this was right when everybody, he had written Hal, and he was traveling about the country reading Hal, which uh, upset a lot of people because... Um, it was sort of profane. But um, so I went that night to listen to him read Hal. And of course, I had just read it myself and didn't particularly like it until I heard Allen Ginsberg read Hal. However, at the end of that, before he could read anything else, one half of the audience stood up and left. So I didn't because I was just entranced with Allen Ginsberg at that point. But Ferlin Getty walked into my office one day, and I got so taken back, I did say, oh, Mr. Ginsburg, I admire you greatly. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so speaking of travel and poetry, several years ago we were headed to um, Apalachicola, St. George Island, and you go through Weewahitchka, Florida, mm-hmm. which is sort of the backwoods of, back backwater, actually, of, of um, I guess it's the... Appalachian River, I think. The, anyway, yeah. So anyway, there, we stopped at a gas station, and there was a young, youngish guy at the checkout thing, and there was a basket full of plums there. And he said, 
And this was an interesting looking guy. He had, it's like he had more teeth than, than his mouth could hold. So they were sort of sticking Everywhere. out a little bit. Yeah. And his hair was sticking straight up and he was Saint unusual all. looking. Yeah. <laughs> but he, um, he said, take a plum. And then he quoted William Carlos Williams poem that, um, what is it? This is just to say about taking the last plum. And needless to say, he didn't look like somebody who would be quoting William Carlos Williams. But it was charming. It was one of those moments when you think you've just well, found a little magic. Poetry appears in all sorts it of does, unexpected moments. Yeah. If we look for it mm-hmm. and wait for it. I, I was interviewing um, someone on the telephone um, about a subject of a, a new book I'm writing. And he turned out to be one of these people who read audiobooks, but he reads them for all the old westerns. And all of a sudden, he broke into, with his faithful Indian companion Tonto, the daring, resourceful mask writer, led the fight for law and order in the early western United States. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm six years old listening to the radio. It was so charming. <laughs> Right. Takes us back. Those of us who listened to the radio back in those days. Yeah, they, nowadays, uh, no one would believe, you know, if you go out to the woods today. You better no. not go alone. Or <laughs> You'll get killed. <laughs> You're in for a big surprise. <laughs> Somebody's going to hit you over the head and drag you into the bushes. It's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. I love that. <laughs> that sounded like the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out it's tune, though. The same tune. Is, okay. Was this before your time, Katie? It was, wasn't it? Not, not, probably not. Probably not. You just didn't own I a just, radio? Well, mom, mom and dad listened to um, albums, and we grew up listening to Bolero, <laughs> of all things. <laughs> and also a the soundtrack education. to Mary, Cop- Mary Poppins and things like that. So it was. And we finally conned Mom into letting us listen to the Beatles. Oh, my goodness. Well, well there you go. Good. Well, as y'all know, uh, since we're um, talking about poetry, and we've had like 100 million dinners at this table where we're sitting right now. As you know, I have a uh, non-political table that you're not to talk about politics at my table or well, we do talk about religion, so I guess we're sort of uh, disgruntled on the subject. But anyway, I decided when we were doing it, when we were going to uh, do a poetry podcast that I would read part of Robert Frost's Mending Wall because it's so political today. And uh, Robert Frost is one of my top favorite poets. I absolutely. Uh, love all his body of work and I particularly like The Land Was Ours Before We Were the Lands when he was reading at Kennedy's inauguration and the sun was in his eyes and he was 150 the years old. The wind was blowing the pages away. Yes, yes. But And the, the poem that he was to read, he couldn't read because it was blown away so wasn't the, the, he then he then recited The Land Was Ours Before we, Is that right? I think so. That's the one he wound up with yes. because the other one was, was uh, gone. But this is called Mending Wall, and I'm only going to read some of the poem uh, because it's long. But it says, Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun. And then down to the next part, it says, Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side, it comes to little more. 
There where it is, we do not need a wall. For he, this is the neighbor of the poet, is pine, and I'm an apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. But he only says, good fences make good neighbors. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't that where there's cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was most likely to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. Wonderful. One thing interesting about that poem, which is certainly one of Frost's most widely known poems, is that, of course, the line that people most often quote from that is, good fences make good neighbors. In fact, I dare say sometimes people quote that without really being aware of where it's from. In, in fact, that's not Frost's own quote. That's the quote of his neighbor, and the poem, in effect, questions yeah. whether good fences make good neighbors. He calls him an old neighbors. stone savage. I love right. that. Right. Um, I see him there bringing a stone grasp firmly by the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also, thinking about us going to the same high school, Ken, I also remember that our high school teacher, Mrs. Miller, uh, loved the poem Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, which is also Frost, and right. she Xeroxed, well, she didn't Xerox because there's no Xerox machine. She mimeographed something like 40 pages of questions on this one short poem. Did she do? She did she torture you with this? I vaguely remember that. And you had to walk around the room. Out of my mind. You had to walk around the room and put your book together. These 40 questions, and you had six weeks to answer the 40 questions on. Stopping by woods on a snowy evening. My least favorite frost poem. Is it? I like it. It's okay, but I've read so many ridiculous interpretations of it. I, I, when I was still teaching, I would get interpretations that where students had gone to the library and found critics who had been published saying that this poem was about Santa Claus. <laughs> well, it wasn't it? Wasn't it? About well, Santa? when I read it, <laughs> I'm so sad. <laughs> Does Ms. Miller know this? I don't know. Those horses Ms. were really reindeer. reindeer. You never picked that up, Gail? <laughs> oh, Ms. Miller, you were so wrong. And then they like to say, well, that's my interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't give me an F on this paper? Right. I have a favorite Frost poem called Design. Does anybody know Design? No, I don't. It's a wonderful Frost poem. Um, I know you borrowed my Robert Frost book last time because you had a favorite. Was, was that what you... I read Design, but I brought it today. Oh, well, read it to us. Really? You want me to? Of we course. To... It's a sonnet, and it's such a wonderful poem to teach. I found a dimpled spider, fat and white, on a white heel-all holding up a moth like a white piece of rigid satin cloth. Assorted characters of death and blight, mixed ready to begin the morning rite, like the ingredients of a witch's broth. A snowdrop spider, a flower like a froth, and dead wings carried like a paper kite. What had that flower to do with being white, the wayside blue, an innocent hill all? What brought the kindred spider to that height, then steered the white moth thither in the night? What but design of darkness to appall if design govern in a thing so small? Um, Ooh, that's deep. It's deep because there's so many people that want to stand on design. And 
what but design of darkness to appall? You know, the question at the end is just... And if How you, many of your students understood this poem? Well, when I got through teaching it to them, they did, but they didn't necessarily like it. But it has homonyms throughout. You know, it has, it has for example, mixed ready to begin the morning right. Is a homonym what you sing if you're an atheist? No, no, no. No, no, no. A homonym is like right as in ritual and right as in correct and then a paper kite. And, and a kite is also a bird of death. So there's all this wonderful death imagery that's subtly worked into it. And the, the fact that the blue flower is white and the spider is white and the moth is white and some of those are anomalies. They shouldn't be white. But if there is a design, then somebody designed for those three things to come together in this ritual of death and blight. So I don't know. I, you know, this, this poem, like many of Frost's poems, is a reminder of what we were saying earlier about finding adventure and wonder in your own backyard. Uh, travel certainly gives us that, but uh, we, we need only look around us and pay attention, uh, which all poets try to do as best we can uh, in order to uh, create a new world. You know, the wonder the I have in my backyard is bulb headlights. And... Um, Ken, the first time you saw my bulb head lights, you wanted to know what? Well, uh, this was right before Christmas, as I recall, and uh, I wanted to know, of course, where you got them, you know, because <laughs> Walmart. If, Gail, if Gail had some, I wanted to get some, too. Um, story of my life. And, uh, of course, I, I immediately ordered uh a couple of sets online. I didn't go to Walmart, but I got them online. They're, and sent them to my daughters, who loved them. You know, yeah. Immediately installed them outside their houses. So there's at least one set in Richmond, Virginia, and one set in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Oh, really? Thanks to you. We're going to Ocean Springs very soon because our our fa one of our favorite writers, Rita Grimsley Johnson, lives there half the year. Half the year in Fish Hollow, and half the year in. Oh, not near Ocean Springs. She lives in Past Christiane. We're going through Ocean Springs to the Walter Anderson Museum. But, uh, well worth a visit. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Shearwater port, Pottery oh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but back to the lights. I, one set was not enough for me, so I have three. I don't know what my neighbors think or the airport, but they're laser lights. And I turn mine on green and put, point them to the trees, and so it looks like I have an entire tribe of fireflies uh, in my backyard and it you know there the fireflies oftentimes in June will make uh, like the Smoky Mountains you can take a tour where the fireflies cover synchronized mm -hmm, and they'll blink on and off together and you can actually see in the woods when they do you can do that right here at Saugahatchee Creek. I was invited to a firefly party, and when they invited me, I laughed at them because I thought it was a, a mystic occurrence, and so the mystic gal was going, but actually it did happen. Very, very interesting. I didn't realize this. our uh, podcast was going to touch on the, the subject of fireflies, but uh, since we're talking about travel and fireflies, I'm reminded of a time when I was backpacking, uh, in the in the mountains of, of North Carolina or in the foothills of North Carolina, um, an area, one of my favorite areas in the United States called the Horse Pasture River, just over the South Carolina border uh, into North Carolina. We used to backpack there and camp along the Horse Pasture River. And I, one night, 
Uh, it was utterly dark, of course, except for our, the little flickering fire that we had. And the fireflies came out, and the fireflies, there were m millions of them, and they were flying around all above, all at the same level. They were all about two or three feet above the ground. Well, so no, they were in two levels. The females are one level, and the males are another. But they were, but they were all pretty much. They were all horizontally. There were none flying up into the trees. Mm -hmm. So it didn't take much imagination to think that there were lots of little people just sort of wandering around on the ground carrying torches. <laughs> and it was one of the most magical things. I've seen lots of fireflies in my life, but I've never seen the, that phenomenon before. Maybe you have. Uh, well, at the Saugahatchee Creek and uh, out in Waverly, is that where it is? Waverly, Alabama. Um, this, it's a forest right by the creek and I guess the phenomenon is perfect for the fireflies and they come there's they come like August 3rd and stay through August 6th and they turn on at 8 15 at night and turn off at night they can tell you when to come to the firefly party but there are two layers of them and I can't remember uh which <laughs> who's on top yeah the missionary <laughs> the women is it the missionary fireflies <laughs> <laughs> or the more. <laughs> I just did a Let's my gardening. Check on that. Yeah, I just did my gardening column on fireflies and how you make your backyard a firefly habitat because they're endangered. Um, habitat changes and and also light pollution have made it harder for them to breed. And they only come out. Um, they stay in the ground or in the bark for up to two years, and when they hatch, they have about two weeks to procreate before they die. So they're rather busy for the period of time that they're doing that. But the, the female ones are usually higher and the male ones are lower. And then there's one species that'll, that's the predatory one and they'll lure them in with their flash and then eat them. So anyway, fascinating. Well, no fascinating. wonder they're extinct. Well, yeah, there is. That. I have a firefly poem oh. from our cookbook. Oh, do you? Yes, right. I do. Let's so I would tie it all in. Okay. Um, is this the uh, witch cookbook? Uh, this is from our newest cookbook, Mastering the Art of Winch Cooking. Available. You should read it, Gail. It's a good book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> available at um, uh, Amazon. Uh, yes, available on Amazon. And I did the illustrations. But my poems in the book, one story, and then the rest of the book, I wrote haikus to go with my recipes. So um, I taught for years. <laughs> they love my haikus. Um, not really. <laughs> anyway, I taught for many summers in a hill town in Tuscany called Montepulciano. And it's a beautiful little town. But you can walk at, out at night and go down the hill to the graveyard. And as you circle down the hill all the fireflies come out and it's just really really magnificent and you've walked down the hill to this renaissance church called san viaggio but all the graves surround it and it's just absolutely gorgeous so here's my poem and it's short because it's a haiku summer night stroll in montepulciano fireflies twinkling dark cypress trees line the path descent to ancient graves Wow. Oh, I love nice. that haiku. Nice. Why do you say we don't love your haiku? We love it. And it's did you nice. not get the text message I sent you earlier this week? I did. <laughs> do you want to tell them what it said? You tell. I was going by the Michelin place on, is it First Avenue in Opelika? And I don't remember the haiku anymore, although it would be in mine and Margie's text messages. They had a haiku on their sign out front about tires. 
Good for them. Did they know it was a haiku? Or I was think it they accident? did. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they knew it was a haiku. Oh, well, what exactly makes a haiku, Marion? Well, if I remember right, it's 575. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, 575. It, we so it said, tires are good to drive. Something about upon the road, something like that. But I demand that you. I saw my phone, but my phone's way over in another place right now. Well, on our next podcast, I want to know that which tire was this? Michelin. Michelin. Where's the Michelin tire? First Avenue, right in Opelika. In Opelika. Do you know what the Michelin man is called? The tire man. The tire man. He has a name. What is it? Bibidendum. Bibidendum? Yes, he was invented in France at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. And he used to like drink martinis and smoke cigars as he rode along on a bicycle. He was still made out of tires. But his name is Bibidendum. Well, that, the fat Michelin tire? Yeah, the well, I Michelin think he's tire. blue. Or is he I, white? Think he's, he's, I think he's kind of tire-like, white, tire-ish. Tire-ish. I I'd like to go... From Opelika back to Tuscany. I'd literally like to go to Tuscany, mm-hmm. but I'd like to go back to your comment about Tuscany. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your experience in Tuscany. Yeah, the first year that I ever taught abroad was in 1999, and the uh, University System of Georgia was establishing a new program. Were you and, teaching haiku? Uh, no, I was teaching art. <laughs> I was teaching watercolor and also art history. And so uh, we were based in this beautiful hill town, and the town is a wine town. I mean, they make uh, Vino Nobelli and, um, or Nobili. And, you um, would know the names of the wine they make. Of course I would, <laughs> as, as, as the mystic wino, too. So anyway. <laughs> um, well, we have a mystic uh, wino now. Anyway, it was a five-week program, and we had 45 students. And we had, uh, you know, we had a director, and then we, who was uh, originally from Rome, Stelio. And Stelio taught at Valdosta State University, but he was leaving Valdosta State and going to somewhere else. He was a classicist. And so um, we got there, and we had to pay he was a them. a class assistant? Well, he ta- no, a classicist. He taught classics. Anyway, um, Stelia was great. But we got there, and that was 1999, and they didn't believe Valdosta State and bank transfers. And so they brought a check. And the Italians, Montepulciano is a commune. It's a hill town, but it's owned by, it's a communist commune. It's owned by everybody in the town. But they said, oh, we don't take checks. We put it, <laughs> the put communists it, don't take no, checks? No, we put it in the bank. Put it in our bank. This is yeah, why the, you, the Russia split apart. Right? Well, the, the Italians are the oldest bankers. So, I mean, you know, they do know something about banking <laughs> and food and wine. Well, anyway, we're two weeks into the program, and we don't have any money. You know, it's like because they won't take the check. And then, <laughs> you know, and my husband was with me, and he would go with them for these negotiations with the bankers. My husband's an accountant, and we would go. Um, uh, my husband said, well, "Just tear up the check, you know, tear it up, you know." And it, well, eventually we we got the money. But faculty had to throw in money. We had a trip down to Capri and had to, you know, take the students and just everybody throw in. and go to Capri. It was great. But anyway, we had a great summer there. And we do day trips into Florence, into Rome by train or bus. And then students lived all over the town. But it was beautiful. Well, so how did you buy your food? Well, we had it. um, It was already planned that we ate at three different restaurants. Uh, So that was, you know, they were going to split the money in the end anyway. 
you know, all the people in the town. They knew they'd get their money out of this university. They just didn't know when. But know. they did, wouldn't take a check. No, they wouldn't take a check. Eventually, Valdosta transferred the money. That reminds me, I want to do a shout-out to some random dude in Mystic, Connecticut. My son, Rivers Langley, you all know he's a comedian uh, and has been since day one, lost his <laughs> billfold going from Boston to New York on Mother's Day. And he gets to Mystic, Connecticut, and has no money, no ID, no credit card, no gas in his rental car. He's going to do a show in New York that night. So he stands outside the, I guess, convenience store and says to people, do you take Venmo, which is how all the young people exchange their money? Well, of course, no one in Mystic, Connecticut, that's amazing he didn't get arrested, but some random dude out there, and I don't know who you are, but thank you, uh, just said, I don't, I don't have Venmo, but here's $30. And so he got to New York where his cousin does have money because he works for like J.P. Morgan or something, and all was well. But that was my best Mother's Day gift ever, that somebody gave my kid $30. From Mystic? Connecticut. Connecticut, from Mystic, Connecticut. Something special about that name. Well, he also, on his trip going to Boston through Mystic, Connecticut, went into the Mystic Market and for Mother's Day bought me Mystic Jam, Mystic Cheese Straws, which I'll give some of you today, Mystic Cheese Straws and Mystic This and That, and wrapped them up and had them sent to me. So it was like very special Mystic Mother Day, mm -hmm. Mother's Day. Well, here's my story about losing money, going broke in, in New England. Um, my wife and I, shortly after we met, I don't think we were even married at this point, um, we were in Boston, where she had been living when we met, um, and we were, we were into making grave rubbings, and so we had bought Ooh, some special paper. You need to come back for our cemetery and, uh, tour. Sure, I'll be glad to come back. Um, and we had made the rounds of cemeteries doing grave, grave rubbings in and around Boston. And uh, we were at the King's Chapel, I believe it's called, uh, cemetery, which is where Mother Goose, the Mother Goose woman, is buried, as is Paul Revere. Um, if I'm not is mistaken. Is Mother Goose a real person? Yes. That is was she, not a real name. Is she like Mrs. Goose? <laughs> Miss Goose? Is I'm she not married? Sure what her, I can't remember what her real name was, but her tombstone does have Mother Goose on it. Anyway, we were, out, we, were, we were doing grave rubbings. We go back to the car, and someone had broken into our Volkswagen, popped open that little triangular window in the front, reached in and grabbed Jan's purse, which unfortunately was sitting on the floor of the, of the front. And Jan was carrying all the money. She had, and back then we didn't, I don't even think we had any credit cards. This is a long time ago. And uh, so we had no money to get back from uh, Boston to Syracuse, where we were both living at the time. And so all we could think to do was to uh, make some grave rubbings and try to earn some money. So we made a sign that said, oh my God. grave rubbings, $15 a piece or $5 a piece or whatever we were charging for them way back then. And we discreetly put it up, and sure enough, several people came along and asked, oh, would you make one of the Mother Goose tombstone for me? So we would do the rubbing and um, got some. We earned just enough money to uh, pay our, our throughway fees and our, ga our gas money uh, back to Syracuse when an officer, uh, one of Boston's finest, came up license. and said, uh, I'm, sir, I'm sorry to tell you you're not allowed to do this in the cemetery and but he was kind enough not to give us a ticket so we promptly picked up our art supplies went back to our volkswagen with a broken window and drove back to syracuse 
arriving back in town with maybe a couple extra dollars to buy some food. So that's my story. Well, that's a good one. Recently, a wonderful and actually kind of handsome police officer did not give me a ticket. And I'm sure I did run that stop sign because um, I've recently um, lost a tooth. And so I immediately went to my dentist and demanded a tooth, which I got, but it was $5,000. So I'm driving home pretty shook up at the price. And by the way, I'll smile for y'all. And Beautiful. <laughs> um, but anyway, I got stopped well for it. running the stop sign near your house, which I really can't believe I ran. But I, he said I did, and I'm going to believe him because he was cute. But I think he felt sorry for me. And y'all don't do this now when you get stopped because when he asked for my license, <laughs> I gave him my library card, my Molly Hollifield library card. It's ancient. That goes back a few years, yes, Gail. Yes, yes. And he said, ma'am, can I have your license? And I looked at him like, are you out of your mind? You're holding it. And I realized I'd given him my library card. So were you toothless when you gave him the library card? Yes. Yes, yes that, I was. I wasn't toothless. I was just missing one major tooth. And... Um, so, and also, they give you something before you get your implant called a flipper. And uh, the flipper, um, I would take out the minute I'd get home. So I'd head out somewhere like swimming or Tai Chi, and I'd realize I didn't have my tooth. And I thought, I'm going to be late to Tai Chi. I'd turn right around and go get my flipper. But it broke. And so this is when the policeman stopped me for, and everybody that has ever missed a tooth would understand this completely. Of course you run stop signs because you're not thinking about the law or, or endangering others. You're thinking about how can I get a date with the tooth missing in front of my mouth? <laughs> Do I have a speaking engagement? You know, can you laugh without your lip? moving is there a mystic photo shoot this week there was that, that's the bad part there was a mystic photo shoot <laughs> and um when we met the guy at Pasaquan, he was so nice and he was talking to me and he said several funny things so i would just put my finger to my lip and laugh <laughs> and i noticed him staring at me i don't know if it's because he was taken with my beauty or wondering what on earth i was doing <laughs> But thankfully, I, I do have that fixed now. So I just think of all the places you could have traveled to if you didn't have to shell out all that money for a new tooth. Well, Gail. I didn't have to pay for a ticket because I think he felt totally sorry for me. <laughs> so I have a, an Italy story. So about 20 years ago, I went to Italy with a bunch of women friends. And um, we were... We'd been there long enough that I thought I could speak the language enough to have this conversation. So um, um, Lee Albrook was with us, whose mother is the very, very famous Lee Cannon. Who, oh, of course. Yes. And it's she was Lee, the social director for the entire town. Entire town, yes. Um, but Lee is Italian, and so her family are, uh, members are still in Italy. And so we were staying with them, visiting with them in Formia. And this is at the end of the trip, and I again, thought I had just learned enough English. And I noticed when we were in Rome that there were all these cats all over the Colosseum, and they looked good. They were well-fed. They didn't look wormy or emaciated or mangy. And so, and then we'd see them in Florence and in various places. So there in Formia, there were all these cats. And I thought that I asked one of her Italian relatives, what do you feed the cats? Or what do the cats eat? 
And apparently I didn't because she looked stricken and horrified. And one of our friends who was with us was going, no, 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 no. Uh, she she um, translated. And apparently I asked her, do you eat cats? So, you know, I have learned one lesson, which is that you should not try to speak the language until you feel like you really have, have gotten it. Yes. Good advice for all of us to keep in mind. Well, Ken, you have been our first ever podcast guest, and believe me, you were uh, everything we expected and more, and we hope you'll come back. Um, are, are any of your books available on Amazon, or how do you get a Ken Autry book? If you go to Amazon.com, um, there are at least a couple of them, I think, still available. I mean, they're right. such hot-ticket items that I'm not sure they're yeah, still available. Yeah, all poets say that. I'll, <laughs> and also, will you tell us one more time about how we can um, uh, be involved with the Third Thursday Poetry? Well, the Third Thursday, as I say... Um, begins in August. Actually, this year we're starting, not the third Thursday, but the final Thursday in August in order to accommodate returning students to Auburn. But um, it is uh, generally each third Thursday at the Art Museum here in Auburn. In, in Auburn, Alabama. And it, uh, st we start at six o'clock each time with a brief open mic uh, session, which in, during which we invite six or seven folks to sign up to read poems of their own and then we lead into a guest poet and uh, these are poets from around the country widely published poets uh, in some instances poets uh, who live in our area in our region but uh, on occasion we've had poets from the west coast or from uh, New York and all over the place and we are fortunate enough to have a grant from the Alabama State Council on the Arts to now, help defray you, the expenses for this, as well as some support from the Department of English and the College of Liberal Arts at Auburn. That's wonderful. Did you apply for this grant? or We, we, we did. We began applying for the grant back in 2014 was the first time we got uh, monetary help from the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and we've continued to do so annually with the help of the museum and, and the their Jules able Collin, grant writers. The Jules Collin Museum is absolutely beautiful, and uh, they have a Chihuly in the um, what foyer. Would you, the foyer. Is that a foyer or an oh, atrium or atrium, what? Atrium. Well, as for the mystics, you can find us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Mystic Order of East Alabama, and you can find the show on Twitter at The Mystic Pod. YouTube.com slash The Mystic Pod. You can drop us a line at TheMysticPod at gmail.com, and our direct messages are open. So rate, review, and subscribe. And remember, be the flame, not the moth. Mm -hmm.